Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson, and this is The Road Taken. With me tonight is my guest, Michael Lally. Hi, Michael. Hey, Vicki. <laughs> I'm gonna do my best to speak up tonight. He, he, he's got that, like, that godfather kind of... I'm gonna make you an offer you can't consider. <laughs> do, do you know all those guys? Which guys? The, the, those, like, do you know, do, did you know Al Pacino and... and I know Al Pacino. That you did. Yeah, we were we were friendly for a while when I was living in New York in the late seventies and early eighties. Okay, so we're gonna go back and we're gonna because you know like everybody cool and hip because you're cool and hip and so we're gonna we're gonna talk about the cool and hip factor. Be, before we uh, we get into anything, I just want you to know we had to go to Barnes and Noble to pick up a copy <laughs> of Michael's book, Another Way to Play, because he forgot his book. So tell how you what you did when you uh, before you came. You mean oh, I had to order it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I forgot to bring it. I'm 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 here from New Jersey and we're in we're in New York, Manhattan, uptown. And I arrived with everything I needed except a copy of my book. So what did you do? So I called Barnes and Noble <laughs> near where this place is. They said they had a copy. They said, wait a minute, what's the name of it? I told them another way to play. They said, who's the author? I said. Michael Lally, L-A-L-L-Y. They said, wait a minute, they came back. They said, we have a copy on the shelves, we'll keep it behind the desk for you. Who's gonna, <laughs> who's gonna pick it up? And I said, Michael Lally, L-A-L-L-Y. <laughs> and she laughed, and I said, I'm doing a thing, and I forgot my book. And she said, that's all right, it'll be right behind the desk, and it's only $375. <laughs> was very sweet. That's very name cute. Was I mean, it was Susan, and, and she was good for her word, and so we got the book, and I, at some point in this broadcast, Michael's actually going to read something. Do, do, do you have something, like, prepared that you love to read? I can always, yeah. You're going to find something that you love to read. So, and this book is a collection of, like, this is, like, a retrospective of, like... Yeah, it's actually a, what, what, what poets call a new and selected, but it just says poems. It doesn't say new and selected because... Why? Because it's so damn big. Thought, <laughs> that it's not selected? Yeah, it's every, people are going to think it's collected. Most people's collected poetry is. But I'm a compulsive writer. I write every day. We're going to talk about I that. I have to. I can't help myself. I've been doing it since I was a kid. Anyway. Michael has 30, 30, count them, 30 books out. Yeah, this 30. is the 30th book. So, so it's poems 1960 to 1757. That, I went, that was gibberish. Start from, over. That was a oh. selection <laughs> from 57 years worth of poetry. Oh my gosh. From 1960 to 2017. So the reason there's a picture of me on the cover that doesn't look like this old man <laughs> is because this picture was taken taken in 1989, which is the midpoint. 1960 and 2017. I'm so glad there's a reason for that. And tell them who took I, the picture. I looked for a photograph yeah. from that year, and Gus Van Sant had, he did a book of portraits. I think it's called 108 Portraits. He took, I think they were large Polaroid camera hmm. photos, I, I think. I'm uh, in that collection on the page opposite Kino, Kino Reeves. and. Uh, Keanu. 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 Say it like the kids say it, Michael. I don't know how to talk. That's why I read it. They used to give me crap. Can you curse on this? Yes, you can. They Fuck used yeah. To, they used to give me shit when I was a little boy in Catholic school, you know. 
because I talk like a little hoodlum and all that stuff. Hooligan. I knew I was really smart, but they gave me shit for the way I talk. So I wrote. Ah. Where did you go? Where did you go to school? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in South Orange, New Jersey. I went to a lady Sorrels grammar school, and I went to St. Benedict's a Boys School in Newark. Oh, you and must have been. You must have been like the total like bad kid. I, I, how I was did you do that? Yeah. A lot of the time. How How did you? Did you get like beat? Did they like hit you in those days? Sometimes, yeah. I remember one time I got beat when I was a freshman. I remember I was playing football and. Uh, I remember some guys, I, they were giving me some crap in the hallway. You had to do it really fast before one of the lungs caught him. <laughs> and someone came up and started punching me for something I had done, which I forget what it was. And I just went, oh, keep it up. I love it. And they were like, fuck! <laughs> I scared the shit out of <laughs> Were you a fighter? Did you like I start fights? I got a few fights with people most of my life until oh. I, I stopped drinking. And we're going to talk about that too. Uh, Michael and I share a, a passion for the buzz, as uh, we did anyway. Um, <laughs> now is the passion for sobriety. I went to service for four years in the military. As an what, what branch? In the Air Force. Air Force. Here's what happened. I was going to enlist in the Army because as this beautiful young black woman who I was engaged to and in love with and they wouldn't let us marry because we were too young. How, how old were you? I was 19, she was 18. Mm-hmm. At that point, Wait a minute, isn't 18 the age of consent? No, in New York, in New Jersey at that time it was 21 without your parents' consent. You're too so, young, so you can't do it. You could get, we, most people I knew who wanted to get married young would go to Maryland. Right, I remember that. But. You couldn't get married if you were black and white in Maryland in 1960, wow. 61. Wow. Couldn't get married in most of the United States. So, and then we got in an argument and she was hanging around this guy I didn't like. And so I thought I'd- Did you punch him? I actually grabbed him. <laughs> I thought, I, I didn't think this was gonna be a I, real story. I pulled him up by the front of his coat <laughs> and I pushed him up against the wall and his, bar I used to hang out in called Obie's, which I thought, I thought the bartender's name was Obie. Yeah. No. No, it's for the off-Broadway ones. For the Obie's. But I had never the been, Obies. I had never been, <laughs> I had never been in a play, otherwise in high schools. So I didn't know nothing about that. I threw him against the wall and I said, you better be treated right or I'll come back and I'll rip your lungs out till you throw your lungs. <laughs> And then I, went to join the Army. then I went to join the Army in New Jersey. Why? Because they would draft me anyway. And it was, Did you, know, it was, was a romantic that before, idea. Was, was that just, before the number? Was that before the lottery? The uh, draft yeah, lottery? Yeah, no, it was long before yeah, Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. 1961. 1961. So, so I, I, and it was 1960, beginning of 1962. So I went over to the Orange Post Office in New Jersey, the town where I was born to enlist in the army and this Air Force recruiter saw me. I had on my shades and my little jazz man out because I played jazz then. <laughs> what did you what did you play? Mostly piano. I played a little bit upright bass and I played a little trumpet, but mostly I played piano. That's that's where I thought I would you know, that's where I was most skilled, I thought. Ah. And uh, so I had this outfit on and I, I talked like this only worse. <laughs> you know, I, my black girl would say, I don't understand a word you're saying. I'd be like Oh, you know, baby, I'm <laughs> So I walked in, and this Air Force guy sees me, and he goes, 
hey man, what's happening? He was a white guy. No white guy said that in 1962, right? And he slapped my hand like a hip, you know, like a hip you, guy. Yeah. And, you can't uh, say hipster. Because no, hips, hipster's not a good else. word, right? Well, depends on context. Back then it meant something else. Yeah, hipster was a good thing guys. back. Right. So anyway, he goes, he pulls my story out of me. I'm going to join, you know, I had to fight my girlfriend. She's black, you know, I'm blah, blah, blah. I play jazz. And he went, oh man, if you join the Air Force, first of all, she sees you in uniform, she comes running. Her parents came in and signed the thing, because you're like, you know, in your uniform. And you'll be playing piano, I guarantee, in an officer's club in Manhattan. It'll be the same as what you're doing now. Only you got this guaranteed income and service. This this is total lie. This has to be a total lie. Total lie. Total lie. And I I saw Private Benjamin. I fell for it. I signed up. And then when I got to basic training. Why four years? That's what was the. Uh, I don't know. I guess that's what uh, that was the tour of duty at that time for for the Air Force. Wow. All my friends were like, "What the fuck are you thinking? You were in the military in <laughs> four years." I'm like, "Yeah, what the fuck was I thinking?" And then oh I get God. then I get in the basic training. Yeah. And they say you know they test you and they go, we want to put you in officers candidate school with all these college graduates because uh -huh. you're you know you're really smart which I already know. And they said, but I was such a punk. I said, I don't want to be with all those rich college kids. I just want to be with regular guys like me. So I turned it down. More money, easier. That's the kind of guy. I was. And I got court martial. They, they said, we'll give, court -martial. We'll give you a general discharge. And I said, no, I'm not going nowhere. I wanted to get out, but I didn't I didn't like being defeated. I didn't like anybody telling me what to do. Oh, God, so, such an addict alcoholic. But I ended up going to the University of Iowa on the writers on the GI Bill. Oh, well, that's a good thing. Course. Got a couple degrees, so it turned out okay. What are your degrees? A uh, degree in... Reason poetry. That ended up coming in very handy for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, was, I already was writing and publishing poetry when I got there. Okay, so we're gonna. Okay, so let let's talk about that now since we're here. So you're a little kid. When, what do you? What's the first thing you want to be when you grow up? When you're little. I don't remember. You know, probably a cowboy in those days. That's a good thing. But I didn't want to ever be a poet. I just always knew I was. Really? When did you start write? When did you start writing? There's poems I have in my archives. There's a poem I wrote to my mom when I was five. Aww. So I don't know where that came from, but um, is so when did you? And I would call myself poet. I wasn't writing so much poetry when I hit my adolescence. Yeah. But I would tell girls I was a poet because it seemed to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Did you write that poetry? Yeah, I would. And then people would ask me to they'd pay me. To write right. poems to their girlfriends, and I'm like, oh, that's a gig. <laughs> you know? That's an excellent gig. So, uh, so you found out that worked for you, but that wasn't your motivation. You, you were. Well, the motivation was I didn't see myself anywhere. I loved art. I loved literature. I loved music. I loved most of all movies. Mm -hmm. And I would go to them, and they'd be a big escape. I lived in a little house with a lot of people. How many siblings? I had six siblings, but the one the one between me and the others died as an infant. Mm -hmm. So growing up, there were there were six of us. I had five, and then a mother and a father, and then a great aunt lived with us for a while. Oh, and wow. then 
various guys and friends of my father's and uh, and uh, my grandmother came to live with us and we would ch ch change the porch into a room and uh, a lot of and then we had a border I called him out but he was just a border he just paid rent uh -huh. to help us you know make ends meet so what'd your dad do my dad was a seventh grade dropout born in 1899 to Irish immigrant parents big family as well and he went to work in seventh grade, and he... He went to work in seventh grade, doing what? He worked in, you know, stores, mm -hmm. cleaning floors, uh, sweeping floors and things like that. And uh, so he was born a year before the century, and wow. by the 1920s, he owned stores. He was so sharp. How, how, how did he do that? He, you know, he got partners. He got money people because he was such a hard-working guy, so smart. What kind of stores? What did he do? He owned hardware stores. Uh -huh. And then, after wow. the war, mm -hmm. the first recession, I think, under Eisenhower, he lost the store. By then, I'm, I was born in 42, so by then I'm like 10 or something. And um, he opened the home repair business, which I worked in. So we, uh, you know, we went to rich people's houses and cleaned their litters and, gut litters and gutters and put in new glass when they broke it and fixed their screens and their handyman you know, electrician, like all that kind of high, thing. High end handyman. Handyman shit. Yeah. And, uh, but and that's, that's what I grew up doing. And I vowed to myself doing that because mm -hmm. I grew up in South Orange. It was a very wealthy town mm -hmm. with this immigrant corridor, mm -hmm. which, um, you know, my neighborhood was mostly cops. My, one of my brothers was a cop when he was still living at home. Mm -hmm. One of my cousins next door became a cop. My brother married a girl from the next block whose father was a cop. Uh -huh. My best friend across the street's grandfather lived next door. He was a cop. <laughs> there was a you know, cop around the corner, a cop down the street. It was just a lot of cops. Is that how you stayed out of jail? You knew all the cops? Oh, they were, that was worse if you knew oh. the cops. Oh, really? I, used to, I have a poem where I say something like, uh, if you think it was bad, having a cop, you know, being pulled over by, by a cop and having him say, oh man, what's your brother going to say about this? Think about it, what it's like having a cop pull you over and go, what's Ma going to say about this? <laughs> yeah, that's not it good. Fun, no. no, that wasn't good. Was and you were misbehaving yourself. I was in trouble all the time. Okay, so when, when did you start getting into trouble? What, what, what was that about for you? Um... It was about... Um, was alcoholism in your family? Alcoholism was in my family, mm -hmm. yeah, very much. So my grandfather, the Irish immigrant, was a cop. He was the first cop in the town. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother talked the police doctor into getting him an early retirement on some jive physical thing because he was such a bad drunk, he was in trouble all the time. She was afraid he'd lose his job. She's got eight kids, you know. Oh, so this way he had a pension? So he got a pension, and then he could just sit in his rocking chair and drink. So he was pretty much drunk all the time. To the neighbors, he was the, the, the he was funny. He was the drunk, mm -hmm. you know, with a stained fedora and going out in his underwear sometimes forgetting to put on his pants. <laughs> but to, Every know, neighborhood's got to have one. But to the family, he was, as the Irish say, he was himself. Everybody'd say house himself today. You know, that man, you know, that the head you know, the head of the clan. And he was a tough guy. My father told me he used to line up all his eight kids at the end of the week and smack each of them 
And when he was done, say, that's for what I didn't catch yet. This week. <laughs> oh, my God. But as my father also said, he would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to shovel coal so they could all wake up to a warm house. Oh. You know. So there was the loving. Soul style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soul style. His nickname was Iron Mike. They were tough guys. And uh, Was your father a tough guy? No, my father was a sweetheart. But mm. he was a tough guy when he was drinking when he was young. Mm. He quit drinking when I was little. And uh, Why did he quit drinking? Because that wasn't in vogue back then. Uh, well, I think Alcoholics Anonymous was relatively new. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, introduced to it. So, uh, but the, you know, the, the whole... The whole clan was, you know, drinking is a part of the Irish tradition, and it's a great one when it's done, done well. I mean, the parties, we had so many great parties. <laughs> I loved so much about the culture I grew up with, and I hated so much about it. What'd you hate? I hated their narrow-mindedness. I mean, I fell in love with a black girl. Mm -hmm. Imagine how that one how did you? Yeah, how did your family take to that? My Irish cop brother mm -hmm. said, you know, wrote to my sister, I was in the military by then. Mm -hmm and said, if he marries her, he's not gonna be allowed in my house or he's not gonna be allowed to see my kids. <sighs> and my father, you know, his first thing was, you're not gonna be allowed in the house, you know, you're out of this clan, and then he, he, was, he was sweet, so he came back and went, tried to reason with me. And but you ended up not marrying her, correct? We ended up not marrying because she ended up getting, while I was in the military, she ended up getting pregnant by another guy. Mm -hmm. But I ended up taking her back and saying, give the baby up. She, had, she went to a home in Newark to have it. And I was with her all the time. I was in the military, but by then I was stationed in New Jersey, so I spent all my time with her. She ended up, she, the deal was she would give up the baby and then and we'd get together and then we'd see how it worked. And if it worked, we'd get the baby back. But as soon as she gave the baby up, she came to see me and stay with me. And she was staying somebody, she met a brother and sister on the bus to Fort, I was to Asbury Park, I was stationed at Fort Monmouth. Excuse me, and uh, we got in an argument. She had the engagement ring and all that. I got, I was jealous. I was a punk, I was crazy, I was a rageaholic. It is so hard. I, it is so hard. I've spent the evening. I've spent the last yeah. five hours. I can't even imagine you that way. Yeah, a lot of people can't. But that's what it was. And so you know, we're stopped at a stoplight, and she's trying to get the ring, ring off, and she can't get it off. And mm -hmm. I said some nasty remark about, yeah, you, you know, like she was trying not to get it off to keep the ring. You know, it's worth hundred bucks or forty bucks or something. I bought it on bought it through a catalog in the Cotney Airport so several payments to get the ring. And she slammed the door. You know, we made up um, years later as friends. We remained in love with each other and best friends till she passed. But uh, but that was a rough period. I uh, I went off the deep end after we broke up. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I married a woman I had met once briefly and was corresponding with. What? You and met her once? Yeah, I could do this all night to tell these stories. I met her once. I went, I got a, my, I had a, my oldest brother was. That a, must have been a really good date. What, what, what was that once? It wasn't once? a date at all. What was it? No, it was terrible. Oh, oh, it was terrible and you married her. That's even better. Well, I mean, it was terrible in the sense that it wasn't any getting to know her. This is what happened. 
My oldest brother was in World War II, so was my second oldest brother. My second oldest brother was in Okinawa, but my oldest brother never got out of the States. The war was over in Europe. He was in the Army Air Corps, he was heading there. The war ended, he came home. But while he was in the Army, he started praying. He read that Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Mm -hmm. So he started praying for the kamikaze pilots who were killing themselves where his brother was in the Pacific Theater, oh. killing brothers on a ship. He felt their desperation, wow. and he started praying for them and felt that they were calling to him to help them. So he decided to become a Franciscan. Which is? A Catholic friar, you know, it's the kind you see friar tucked with the ropes around Right. Him, the brown, you know, Yes. Clothes. He decided to become one of those guys. Rome, uh, in Romeo and Juliet, there's friar yeah. tuck, yeah. That guy. Yeah. yeah. Oh. My brother became one of those. And there was a college in upstate New York called uh, Safe Adventures, mm -hmm. which, um, and he got me a sort of brother and a family scholarship to it. So I went there, but I got kicked out. And um, why, was, why were we talking about that? I um, we were talking about the girl that oh, you ended girl. up marrying that you so, knew once. Oh, yes. Ah. So, so before I got kicked out, there was this press day. St. Bonaventure is known as a good place for Catholic journalists to, yeah. to study. And I was a journalism student, and because um, they didn't have creative writing or anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, Catholic seniors from Catholic high schools came to this day. And I walked out of my dorm. I was actually hosting, I was responsible for getting Pierre Salinger, wow. who was Kennedy's uh, yeah. press secretary uh -huh. around, because he was speaking. Uh -huh. And I saw I had a name tag on, which I hated. You know, I'm too cool. I wanted a name tag. And these two girls are sitting in the fountain or something on the quad, and one of them is really pretty. I go over and start, you know, badly choking with her. You know, like, hey, I'm Michael. You know, whatever I'm saying. And there's this little dark-haired girl there, but I'm not paying no attention to her. And she starts giving me shit, the dark-haired one. So I grabbed her program, wrote a little poem on it, said, here, read this every night before you go to bed and then tell your kids to do the same, maybe your grandkids will understand. You know, I was just cocky. <laughs> and I left, but she found out who I was and started writing me. In the old days, people used to pick up a pen and a pad and actually write letters. Yeah. Yeah, those were the days. And when I, when I had all this trouble with this woman, I wrote to her about it, how oh, I love this woman. And so you were writing to this woman about the woman I that was. and she had never sent me a picture or anything i'd asked for it mm -hmm. so i'd write to her and uh she'd write back and i'd write you know drunken letters and everything and uh eventually i got in trouble i was stationed in spokane washington it's long after i'd been court-martialed and was stationed in the south you know, they deliberately to break me of my civil rights shit, and instead they ended up running me out, asking the Air Force to get me out of the South. Um, Why'd you get court-martialed? I got court-martialed because I went AWOL. I was stationed in Southern Illinois, and I went out to San Francisco for a few weeks. <laughs> oh, God, you are, you are a mother's, like, nightmare, aren't you? I was. I was oh, my, my God. My father blamed me for my mother's death. Well, it's that about. And I hated it all my life. And then old age, looking back, I thought, you know, 
there was something to it because she she had cancer she was going to die anyway but they operated on her and she died of a heart attack but she had had a flu up and according to him they were always after some something bad I did and got in trouble for her. How long ago did she die? 66 so that's a long time. That's a long time ago. And I was early 20s. So so you had, tried, you had tried to get sober once then? Um, Did that have anything to do with her? It had to do with my first wife. My first wife, uh, I, I called her and asked, I was calling up women in my address book and they were all black except for her. Not that, you know, I'm not... Reverse it's prejudice? It's just the way it was. It was just okay. the way it was. You know, I played jazz, I talked like this. I you did drugs. Yeah. I did drugs. I tried, you know. I was this kind of guy. There's a lot of white girls that wanted to hang out with that poor song. <laughs> uh, but I, was, I just went through my address book from here on and was asking women to come to Spokane to live with me because I. Asking I, women at law, like women? Whatever woman I called, I'd ask, <laughs> hey, come out to Spokane and live with me. Spokane? What, where the hell is that? You know? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Or they, you crazy fool? We are stuff like that. Yeah. But um. But yeah, I would um. Now I'm distracted looking at myself. I know. Well, I'm I'm looking to see who's on. Hi, John. Oh, I'm looking. Carolyn, Tracy. All right, I'm just saying hi to people. Hi out there. I was just making sure we were actually on. Yeah, I. The 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 first wife. Yes. When I you got, inviting when people I got to, come to her, out. everybody yeah. was turning me down. <laughs> this club I played and had been shut down and they had raided it. I happened to be on a midnight shift, so I missed that. But they told one of my buddies, tell tell Lally we're coming for him, you know. So I was I was hiding out in my apartment. I was paranoid, you know, except for going to my my work. I actually worked at the Spokane Airport for some reason. The Air Force paid me in the Air Force to work for the civilians. I don't know what that was. But it was, a, it was a sweet gig. I was a weatherman. Anyway, I was calling all these women, they turned me down, and then she said she would come out. And then I woke up the next morning and I thought, wait a minute, I have never even seen this woman. So I thought, oh, I should get out of town. That's what I should be doing. So I called her back and I said, hey, wait a minute, you know, don't come out, I'll come back and we'll, we'll see how we feel about it. Thinking, you know, I'll get to see her and right. decide. So I get there, she lives in Tonawanda outside of Buffalo. I pull up, I had gotten letters from her riding a horseback by a lake. I thought she was a rich girl, working as a candy striper, whatever they call them in a hospital. Candy striper, yeah. I thought only rich girls did volunteering work, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Turned out she wasn't. Pull up in this little tract home, and the, I say to the cab driver, this guy, guy must have the wrong address. He goes, this is the address, buddy. I'm drunk from the airport, airplane. I get out, there's a little woman, she was a foot shorter than me, wraps her arms around me and, and pulls away and says, come on, you gotta meet my father. He had a little, uh, he had a little shop in his basement where he did dental uh, mechanisms, you know, for dentists. So I went down to the basement. He was a, he had a messed up foot from an accident when he was a kid, so he had one of those big shoes. So he's limping around the basement, he was a, you wouldn't know who he was, but Ralph Cramden from the Honeymooners, you know who he was. Hell yeah. You've he seen was, the Honeymooners, haven't you? No. Oh. He was like a working class lump kind of guy. 
talk like everybody I knew. Yeah. And he was like, well, if you bananas want to get married, and I'm like, what? Married? Who's talking about married? So when I was drunk, I had obviously said some things. Oh. And, um, and, and then he says something about her fiance. I'm like, fiance, what? She goes, no, no, I already told him that's over, you know? I'm with Michael, you know? And this whole thing's going on. I'm like, I'm all dizzy and drunk. And, and then she pulls me outside and we sit on these swings next to each other. And I, I still haven't gotten a good look at her. <laughs> and um, I haven't gotten a good look at her. Then we, we get in the car and we go out to the dunes or lake, whatever the lake mm -hmm. is there, Lake Erie. Mm -hmm. And we make out and she's very sensual and, uh, you know, it was nice. And I'm like, uh, yeah, what the hell, Mary? Was she the you know, Scorpio? Was she a Scorpio? No, she was a Taurus. Man, oh, man, same, yeah, there same you go. Yeah. And um, I, I felt like it was creative. I, you know, most of my life I felt like I'm an artist. Everything I do is art. Fuck you. you know? How long did you stay married? You stayed married a long time. Was it a good marriage? I was, a good, you know, I was an Irish Catholic. I once we were married, I was like, okay, this, I was, I was faithful and so mm -hmm. on. It was, a, it was a rough marriage because, um, you know, first thing that happened was she was all sympathetic and understanding about my love for this black woman whose nickname was Bambi because of beautiful big brown eyes, but um, after we were married, she said, if I ever run into Bambi on the street, I'll cut her heart out. But she was a tough little girl, too, because, you know, that lifelike, you know. Did she drink? No, she was, uh, she didn't have any of those problems. She was, uh, she was, she was an amazingly talented, brilliant, bright, incredible person. She had been, she had gone to the University of Buffalo and dropped out to marry me. I wanted to go to school in Spokane. She didn't want to. She just wanted to create a little cocoon and stay in it. This is not my style. I, I'm a writer. I like to spend a lot of time by myself. Then when I'm done, I want to go out and party yeah. with people. And then yeah. I want to go back to my cave. So, um, yeah, there was, I took her to a party early on when we were in Spokane. You know, we're getting to know each other. She had kind of a slightly collapsed lip and big blue veiny clot right here. And she had a scar that went around like that. And, turned out uh, something, had, she told me she had been in a car accident and was in halfway in the process of getting it all repaired when the surgeon died and she said, fuck it. And I'm like, yeah, fuck it, you know, because that's why I liked her. Mm. I mean, I liked her a lot. I didn't know, I never was, I, don't, I definitely ended up loving her as well. Um, you know, I, didn't, I never fell in love with her, but I certainly ended up loving her and we were devoted to each other you know we and were you kids. Had kids together we were kids together exactly. and you had kids together right and we had kids together uh -huh. we didn't have kids for four years so uh -huh. we uh, got to know each other yeah we got to know each other and one of the first things that happened in spokane was i took it to a party a guy shot a beer out of my hand trying to prove something and i was in a blackout by the time we left the party i remember that part i wake up in the morning and she's not in bed, she's in the living room or somewhere, and I wake up, you know, I'm all fucked up, hangover, and she comes in and she's like upset and frightened, and I'm like, well, what's, what are you talking about? You know, what happened? I mean, that guy shot, you know, and these guys are like that, and 
you know, it's not a big deal. I wasn't scared. I didn't get hit. You know, I got some glass. And how was that? She's like, no, I'm talking about when you took me to the, the whorehouse. I'm like, what are you talking about? It was this, it was a black whorehouse that was one of the only places you could get booze after hours. Because Spokane, even though it was in the north, it was like a lot of towns back in times of legal and de facto segregation. The law would let black establishments do what they wanted as long as they didn't mess with white people. Mm -hmm. So you could go to this place and get some booze. And there was gambling going on. You know, it was all after hours and illegal. But I, according to her, I took her there and left her in the, in the, in, in the whole, you know, in the little oh, office. So she had to deal with that. It was terrible. So when, when did the drinking start for you? You said it when you were very young. How, how, uh, was it part of the family? It was part of the family, and I was blackout drinking by the time I was, uh, my first fall down drunk, uh, you know, where, where people had to prop me up against the door and then ring the bell and run, and my mother opened the door and I quit. Oh, God. I was like 15. Can you explain to people, normies, what a blackout drunk is? Blackout drunk is when you, uh, continue to continue to function and everybody sees you as functioning human being doing things talking whatever driving even all kinds of things but at a certain point previous in the evening your brain shut down it's not like you have foggy memory not like you have a fuzzy memory it's not like oh I remember this but I don't remember that in my experience it was like door shut Door slam, nothing after that is successful. So, so you can remember to a point clearly, and then boom, it's gone. It's gone. I remember the party. Remember the guy shoot. Didn't remember going to. And then it turns out she said we had an argument over materialism, and you cut off all our clothes. And I went into the. She was a seamstress among many other towns, and I had taken her scissors and cut up all these uh, clothes, and we were in this, we lived in this little basement apartment. And, so she called uh, some people, and they came and uh, talked to me and, uh, and uh, convinced me that uh, I had a problem with it, and I stopped, and uh, yeah, that was that. Wait, you stopped drinking? That's when you stopped drinking? That's right, I'm 50 years ago. But I continue to you know, do drugs on and off until you I... You have not had a drink since you were in your early 20s? I, I was 24, 19... Wow. I was 22, 1964. Yeah. So, so were you doing drugs at this time, or did the drugs? I come did later? drugs. I, no, I, I had done a lot of drugs because I was in the jazz world. But I stopped playing music uh, for my wife. She hated the club scene. Women were always hitting on me whether I had a wedding ring or not, which I did. She didn't want to be in there, and then she didn't want to not be in there, and right. I'd get in trouble. Right. And I'd bring people home, especially when I was drinking. <laughs> hey, I'd not wake her up. Hey, come on. And of course, you know, as you get out of the club at night, you're speeding from entertaining, right? You're not ready to go to bed. I Hey, it's my friend Charlie with his stripper girlfriend. She's going to do a strip on the kitchen table. My wife wasn't happy. Aye, 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 aye. So I said, fuck it. You know, I, I can stop it. I'll stop it. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll stop that. But the writing, when we were first married, she kissed me on the neck when I was writing a story. And I got up and walked out and I walked around Spokane for eight hours. 
and when I came back, she was crying, but she had come 3,000 miles, didn't know anybody. She's there with me, and now I'm doing this, right? Why did you walk out when she kissed you on the neck? Because I didn't, I didn't know how to, I was a very angry guy, and there's a lot of the ways I handled my anger in those days with women, because I never hit a woman, was to shut down. I had to process it. So I walked around for eight hours, processed it, came can back. You, can you, I'm very interested in this. So a woman kisses you, you while shut down. While I'm right. While you're, okay, so now are you upset because she's interrupted your Absolutely, flow? Absolutely, yeah. So that's what it is? Yeah. Okay. So my instinct is to take the, take the typewriter, throw it out, you know, punch in many holes in the wall, break windows, break mirrors, you know, I'm not, I, I, I got I you. never hit a woman, I would, but I, I wasn't fun I was, my first husband was doing that stuff, Irish. So I, uh, you know, I walked around the house, came back in, and I walked in, and she's crying, where, where are you going? I said, here's the deal. I'll take the typewriter. We, we lived in the basement, so there was a furnace right there. And I had already thrown out an album I had of all my old girlfriends, because she was crying. And I thought, look, they're just friends and pictures. I like having them, you know? I said, okay, the hell would it look? And I threw it in the, and as soon as it left my hand, I was, why the hell am I do that? But I was ready to do it with the typewriter, you know what I mean? I'm like, okay, I'll take the typewriter, I'll throw it in the furnace, and I won't write anymore. Or you can not bother me when I'm typing. That's the choice. Okay, so let's go back to how the writing starts. So when did this daily, so you're writing a poem to your mom when you're five. In I school. Was writing, I was writing, I, I, wrote in, I wrote papers in school, and, mm -hmm. and, and I wrote stories when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. and I wrote, and I wrote uh, plays, and I wrote um, poetry. So you're writing all the time, even I'm when you're a kid. Writing all the time, and my first wife knew so well my moods that if I was in a bad mood, she'd say, "Did you write today?" Wow. Oh, right, because wow. she knew it helped with this crazy anger. I have to say, once I stopped alcohol, uh -huh. I wasn't violent. I didn't. I stopped getting in actual fist fights, uh -huh. and um, I could still punch holes in walls, unfortunately. But um, I stopped. A lot of that behavior, not, you know, the violence mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. pretty much run away. Not in the world, but mostly in me. In that, in that form, anyway, of getting in fights with guys. Um, but it took years. It took years. She and I went, didn't break up until um, 70, beginning of 1974, so we were together 10 years. And, well, by then, we were living in a commune in D.C. and had gone through the gay revolution and the women's movement and so on. So it was a whole different trip. We were living in separate bedrooms. I was having, I was in the most promiscuous period of my life, having sex with men and women everywhere. I mean, it was crazy. Um, under the influence of the women's movement and the gay movement. You know I mean? Now, you already have children. We already had children. They lived with us in the community. And so what were you doing to earn a living? I did all kinds of things. I, um, well, I was in the military for four years. That was the way I went from that. Mm -hmm. When I got out, I went to the University of Iowa mm -hmm. on, the, on the GI Bill. I worked, I did home repairs. I said I'd never do them again once mm -hmm. I left Jersey, but I ended up doing my own little, I created my own little business for mm -hmm. the professors. Mm -hmm. I go fix your shit. You know? mm -hmm. That was one job. Mm -hmm. I get up at five in the morning to go out to a, a Procter & Gamble plant outside of Iowa City. I take the bus as far as we go, hitchhike a walk the other mile, 
truckers would pull the trucks in and I'd come in and I'd say, I'll, un I'll unload your truck or I'll pack your truck. And they'd go rest and they'd give me whatever it was, 20 bucks, 25 bucks or something, unload it for the truck. Then I'd go in and I'd do classes. I was also very, I was an activist, anti-war activist, a civil rights activist, so I was doing all that. I was writing for the University of Iowa newspaper had a column in there. Were you getting paid for that? I, I can't remember. I was getting paid for, I was writing for a whole bunch of alternative newspapers. Mm -hmm. I was working in the bookstore and at, at this paperback bookstore called paper, The Paper Place and I had this I had this old telephone band before people were sort of doing that, converting bands, that I had converted so we could go on trips and stuff. And I would take books from the bookstore. I had learned when I worked in my father's little business, he had a little storefront where I would answer the phone sometimes and there was a cigar store across the street with little paperback books. And I got the guy, called him Johnny Cigar, who ran the joint, this Italian guy, he would say, you take the books, as long as you don't get, to get them dirty or, or crack the spine. So I learned how to read books without cracking the spine. And I'm always washing my hands. I got in the habit of washing my hands so I wouldn't get books dirty. So I'd take the books from this paper place uh -huh. that I had heard about in class, uh -huh. and I'd read them at night. And I don't know what, I don't think I you know, hardly slept. I was a speedy character. People called me speedy, you know, naturally speedy. Plus, sometimes I did the actual <laughs> stuff. So, so I, you know, and I managed to talk to school into letting me work on an MFA and a BA at the same time. Wow. So I was there for three years. I got two degrees. And, and you know, when I left, all those jobs were over. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go to graduation. I was working on a job. I was helping somebody. I was, I was with a bunch of, I think they were Hispanic guys in the back of a truck going to, you know, move somebody's furniture. And then we, I got a job teaching at a Catholic girls college in D.C., which I didn't want to do, but I wanted to go to Chicago and work with some activists there mm -hmm. who were buddies of mine in the movement. San Francisco people had invited me out there to work, you know, with SDS and anti-war movement, and people that poetry scene, poetry scene, had invited me to New York. Peter Sheldon had come to visit. So now, are you? When did you start publishing your poetry? When did that start happening for you? First poem was published anonymously in a college oh, wow. literary magazine, anonymously because I didn't go to that college in 1960, and then the next one was published in 19. I think it was as late as, I, I say 66, but it might have been 65 or something. When the little magazine scene started to happen, because I, I was sending my stuff out to get to make money. Uh -huh. I was sending my stories to Playboy and, you know, right. and my poetry to Poetry Magazine and The mm -hmm. New Yorker and things like that. When I wrote poetry, it sounds like me, like I'm talking right now, mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And that wasn't the thing right then, you know what I mean? Wasn't anybody quite doing it that way. At least in my perspective, and but there was like the whole beat poet. It was thing. a beat thing. I was friends with Al, 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 Alan Ginsberg, and you know, and I was a big fan of Jack Kerouac's, and uh, and um, yeah, you know, I was I, I I was around that scene in the fifties a little bit. Right. You know, got kicked out of. Did you used to read in like coffee houses and stuff? Yeah, I read. I started reading in coffee houses and bars in nineteen fifty nine. I was already playing music. I've been playing music in bars. I played music in Irish bars since I was a kid, because you could get a shot, even if you're underage. 
you know, all the bars had an upright piano, go in and play some old Irish tunes and everybody would be, ah, just singing along, east side, west side, whatever the hell it was, you know what I mean? Give me a shot, or they'd throw a dollar on top of the piano. So I've been doing that all my, or I have been all my life. So, so how, did the first, how did the first book happen? First book was a was a was was uh, published by a friend of mine from the University of Iowa. He started a little press, and he published a little book called What Withers, mm -hmm. and um, had some artwork from his wife on the cover. It was, I think, mimeograph because that's when that started. Oh, mimeograph! I, I love this. I think it was before Xerox. Mm -hmm. Then, then there was some zeros. Well, they were all little presses. Mm -hmm. Some were what we call perfect bound. This is perfect bound, has a spine. Mm -hmm. Others were saddle stitched, where it's the staples in the middle or side stapled. Um, they were all different sizes, mm -hmm. all different lengths. And um, one, I, I had six years worth of rejection slips. And once I started publishing in small magazines, mm -hmm. people started asking me for poetry. And I almost stopped sending it out. I did stop sending it out. Why is that? Because I was scared. I rejected so much and criticized so much for mm -hmm. my style. Mm -hmm. And here were people who actually liked what I did. So fuck these other people. Let me go. That's a good time. Can you can you pick something out from that time period that? Um I'll read, I'll read the first poem if you don't mind. No, I don't mind at all. It's um, Why is it called Another Way to Play? It's the name of a poem I wrote, but really, because I'm a jazz, you know, I was a musician, mm -hmm. and because hopefully I became a playful person, and always was, you know, I just had to expose them all. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many ways to play, and my poetry, to me, was another way to play jazz. Mm. So, you know, I don't know if you can hear it, but I can. So this, when, we, when I put this book together, I didn't select poems from all 30 books. I think only 18. Mm -hmm. And then a long section in the back of new poetry, but this was a broadside that was never in any books, but it seemed like the appropriate, appropriate opening. Excuse me. It's uh, a broadside was when poems would be published really nicely on, on some really fine paper and then you could put it up on your wall. So this was one of those and it's called Poems. It's from the late 60s. Whatever it is, I want to do it. Like I want to sit down for a while by myself this week, get a personal letter from William Soroyan as though He'd been reading my books since childhood. Stand up at the reunion of everyone who ever did me a favor and those I lied to and abused or made an ass of myself trying to impress and say very softly in a voice like the works of an Indian we all expected to be a poet but instead was warrior. Everything is a fiction. Sounding more like a Spanish philosopher afraid to kick Franco in the ass and spit on the church. No, all I want to do is sound like what I'm always becoming. You know, what I am. And I want to call it poems. Mm -hmm. And I want the poems to fit in your pocket and is easily lost 
to turn up on wash day with the half-used books of matches and lint, to be left in the bathroom to be read by visitors taking a shit or trying to. I want these poems to be written now, while you're listening. Later, when we're both doing something else, maybe we'll remember, maybe we won't, and no one will ever test either of us on it. And our children will be spared embarrassing questions about their parents. I want these poems to fly south when they have to, to cover the ground when it is time, to be used to wrap sandwiches in for the kids to mm -hmm. take to school. I want a concert to be given with my poems as the audience. I want them to die on their feet or going down on a lover. I don't want anyone to take my poems to bed with them. I want everyone to take my poems to work, to read instead of working. I want my poems to meet themselves on their way from me to you and be surprised. I never want my poems to be mistaken for something to be judged or eaten or fucked or framed and anthologized or criticized. I just want them to be taken for what they are, simply, almost embarrassingly possible. Sigh. <laughs> so that, you know, that's where I was coming from as a young poet, you know? And I had a lot of trouble. I, I once had a book come out, and this book came out in 1997. It was called Can't Be Wrong. It was published by Coffee House Press. Mm -hmm. And somebody wrote a big review of it in a, in a place called the American Poetry Review. Mm -hmm. And he complained about how who cares about all this working class stuff. There's no literary tradition here. There's no oh. literature here. So I had to write a letter. I wrote a letter saying, sorry you missed it. You know, I got a couple of degrees in this shit. You know what I mean? There's there's references to Whitman, Williams, O'Hara, you know, Muriel Ruckheiser, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you just miss it. I'm just not putting in a language to say, hey, look how fucking clever I am, motherfucker. You know, I'm saying it like, no, this is the language I grew up with. Sometimes it's a little more than that. Sometimes it's a little different than that. But that's the idea. You know, the idea is I, I want the kid I was to know there's a place for him. I mean, a lot of people do it now. You know, you got rap, you have uh, spoken word poetry, you got slam poetry, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I was writing that back in, uh, you know, back in the '60s because I grew up with with rhymes that Irish guys did mm -hmm. and the black guys, and I was hanging out with the black guys. So mm -hmm. not just the dozens, but there was a guy. There was two brothers in my town called I think they were called Gilbies, or Gil, something like that, some Irish name. And they would grab you, you know, they were bigger than me. Mm -hmm. they grab you by the front of your shirt and say, what's the word? You have to, you know, Thunderbird, what's the, what's the price? 30 twice, what's, what's the reason? Drinking season, what's the cause? Mother in laws, why stop the corner car? You know, you have to make rhymes and then they hate you when you stop making rhymes. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't just the black guys doing it. So it was kind of a mix of the, of both of those cultures for me uh -huh. that gave me this, and then playing the music that gave me these rhythms in my head I was just always doing. So a lot of rhyme in a lot of my poetry, off rhyme, you know, in the middle mm -hmm. of the line and so on. And a lot at the ends and so on. I write a lot of sonnets, my version of them. There's a lot of sonnets in here. Sonnets about growing up in South Orange. Sonnets about playing jazz in the early 60s, late 50s in, in the village. You got one of those you want to read to us? I could read one of the sonnets. Which I'd one like to, I, I, I want to hear one, I want to hear a sonnet your style. Your style sonnet, I like. I like the sound of that. Um, so you break some rules, in other words. 
Yeah, uh, let me let me write the, the first sonnet. I started writing autobiography biography when I was 18. Because <laughs> uh, everybody wants to hear what you have to say when you're 18. Totally. I thought already I was the most interesting guy you knew. <laughs> and uh, so I started, um, I started that in about eight years later, I had distilled it into 20 sonnets. And this was the first one. They were called the South Line Sonnets. In books, it was the Lackawanna Valley. The Lackawanna Railroad ran through it, separating those on the hill from us. Lackawanna Place was the toughest block in the neighborhood until 1952, when the temptations and reputation moved to Church Street, where the pink devils had roses tattooed between their thumbs and forefingers, wore delicate gold crucifixes on chains around their brown Italian necks and carried porno playing cards from Newark, the city where parades got lost and statues died. Newark, where we all had lived. So that's a version. So now what, what's, uh, what's unconventional about that sonnet? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't fit the, uh, the uh, rhythmic pattern. Yeah. yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't, doesn't fit any classical sonnet form, but many people have fucked with the sonnet form. Right. Ted Bergen changed them around a lot. Uh, I was influenced by a guy named Peter Sheldahl because mm -hmm. he had written a bunch of sonnets called the Paris Sonnets. And I read them before I met him. I like him. He's a great guy. He's a great art critic for The New Yorker. Beautiful, beautiful writer. And he was a good man and a nice friend for a while for me. But when I first read him, I didn't know him, and I had him a chip on my shoulder, and I had never been out of the country, and I'm like, Paris sonnets. I ain't never been to Paris. But I grew up in South Tonks. I write about that, you know. It's like that attitude. So they weren't that different, but still. So how? Okay, so you're, you're in this. You're in this sort of beat poet time, and you're playing music, and you're writing poetry, and you're already married, and you already have kids, and so, and you're doing handyman stuff. So, and you're publishing books. Then I taught at this, I taught at this you, college. Okay, you taught. I left after, you know, a couple of years was, was too hard. They hired me sight unseen and some great writer recommended me without knowing me. Yeah. I never met him, but he liked my work, so he got me this gig. Are you teaching po poetry? What are you teaching? I was teaching literature, poetry, and I even taught a film course. I taught it from the point of view of film criticism. Uh huh. And then, uh, you know, I had done a little acting. I'd been in some. Well, let's talk about that. So, how I'd did been that happen? In, I'd been in some, like, avant garde shows, uh -huh. movies, and people would see me read my poetry and go, I want you to do a thing in my play, or I want you to do a thing, you know, in, in this movie. Uh -huh. So, I'd been in a few things over the years, but I was. Uh, my wife and I broke up, I moved to New York with my son, my daughter stayed with her in DC. I was making a living, doing whatever I could, writing pornography, uh, editing books. Well, what is writing pornography? How do you make a living doing that? There were, there were magazines, there was a magazine, I can't remember the name of it, I think it was Club. Uh-huh. And you go in and you pitch an idea. Okay, I got a story, a guy meets a woman and he got a Polaroid camera and whatever it was, right? Something uh -huh. that had actually happened to me and I was just- Nice. I was just and you go, Okay, and then you know, give you like five hundred bucks or something. Uh -huh. Paid better than anything else. Uh -huh. I wrote reviews for Kirkus Reviews. Mm -hmm. I wrote reviews for the Village Voice, 
I wrote book reviews as well for the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. They didn't pay very much, but they paid something. Right. You know, I got by. I, so I got sent tons of books. I would bring them to Strand, sell bags of books, uh. get, some, get enough money for dinner for me and my kid. Eventually my daughter joined us. Her mother ended up in a coma from a right. fucked up operation. And so she came to live with us. She was coming anyway, eventually. And um, so I had two kids. You know, and now you get, you're getting high, and you're getting high. I'm getting high. Yeah, I was doing a lot of cocaine. That that actually helped and it's for a oh. while because it kept kept me, uh, you know, doing Moving. things quickly and Aww. very cocky. And then I had I got this girlfriend. I had a few living girlfriends here and there, and I got this girlfriend who, um, she's the one that got me to get divorced. We were having dinner, and she said something about divorce. And I said, No, no, I'm still married. And she got up and walked out. And I'm like, What happened? What's she goes, you're full of shit. You're dating people and you're still married. I'm like, oh, okay. Hey, I'm not getting married again. Whatever. So I got divorced. She and I didn't get married, but we were together for a while. She was a great composer, great artist, great woman. Still is a great composer. Ran work. And um, I believed in three omens. I didn't talk to people about this. Sometimes I did if I was signed. But I, ever since I was a little kid, mm -hmm. I thought if I got three omens, I had to do it. Explain. Well, with the acting, what happened was a friend of mine got drunk at a party in my loft, and he got an Irish guy from the Bronx, parents from Irish from Ireland, and he, he got drunk, and I had to ask him to leave. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't like doing that. I'm like, John, you're my friend, but you gotta get the fuck out, man. You know, you're, 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 you're causing trouble for my friends who are trying to have a party. Mm -hmm. So I got him out, and uh, at that party, while I'm, da I'm dancing with a friend of mine, an old girlfriend and dear friend and still a close, very close friend, one of the loves of my life, uh, Karen Allen, and she had just had Animal House come out. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it was. And uh, we're dancing. She doesn't remember this way, but I remember it this way. She said, well, you should do this. You know, I said, it's so great. Your movies are going out. You know, I was in a few movies when I was younger and this and that. She goes, yeah, you should do it, you know. And then McCarthy comes back the next day to apologize. And he says, Lally, I'm going to HP Studios. I just walked in off the street. They love guys like us. I just started talking, telling my bullshit, you know, Irish stuff. They, they gave me a scholarship. I'm, I'm studying acting. You should come. And then that night, me and Rain were, had a mattress on the floor and we were watching the TV at the, on the floor. We were watching a Greta Garbo movie, Stone. We're still out of our minds, and we're like, oh shit, that's cool. And Rain goes, yeah, I mean, that's acting. I want to do that. We should do that. <laughs> so that was three. So I went to HP uh, Studios the next day. Rain and I both started taking a class. We immediately, the guy who was teaching, he had us do a scene. We didn't know what we were doing. Said he has, you know, we learned some things, came back, did another scene. The second scene, he liked so much what I did. He said, "I'm going to get, I'm going to have you and some other actors do this play one night at a theater in Brooklyn. I can count all of them. And I'm going to have people from the industry come see you." Wow. And I gave myself a year now to try and get him, uh -huh. get a paying job mm -hmm. as an actor. But by the time I went to do that play, I had a job starring in a terrible horror movie that. Rain got cast in first, a small part at the beginning of the movie, uh -huh. as one of Dracula's victims. Mm -hmm. I, 
ended up playing, you know, the Dracula killer guy. Wow. You just like fell into that because of her? Fell into it because of her. She didn't, she, I went in, here's, here's what happened. I went in for the audition and they had me audition with the woman who was already cast. Mm -hmm. Turned out she was like the director's girlfriend or something. But, you know, I, we do a sexy scene. I do, you know, I do sexy guy. <laughs> Which in those days, you know, I was I was young. I looked pretty good, and uh, I was younger, a lot younger than that. And uh, and you know, I did this romantic scene very well. You know, mm -hmm. the guy was cut, and and he goes, "That it?" And he said, "Yeah, thanks a lot." And I start to walk out, and I hear the guy, I guess he was one of the producers or something, say to the director, "Yeah, I mean, but but can he be macho?" And so, oh no! So you know what I did? Oh no! I just, I just, I just snapped real quickly. I grabbed him, pulled him against the wall, and I went, "Hey, motherfucker, that that macho man!" Pushed him back and walked out. And they hired me. <laughs> wow! Unfortunately, that didn't work in Hollywood. <laughs> okay, so tell us how Hollywood happened for you. That's that's. A, a so you stop thing. looking. I'll tell you when it's right, yeah. to stop. Let's see what's I, going on here. Yeah. I fell for a. Oh, of course it's about a woman. Every every woman. every story is about a woman. This is a star. You don't have to be quiet back there, by the way. Samantha's back here. Right? We're going to talk about your documentary in a few minutes. We're being filmed, and and I don't know. We'll, we'll it, we're being filmed. We're, yes. we're, being, we're being double filmed. Um, so talk I, about Hollywood. Karen took me. My friend Karen took me to see a play at Second this Stage. Is Karen Allen? In up in uptown. It was uptown in those days. It was up around here somewhere. Mm-hmm. Second stage back in those days. Mm -hmm. It was like on Amsterdam, off of Amsterdam, ninety second, something like that. Okay. And it was called. It was up on a. It was up. You had to go on an elevator to get up to it. It was called second stage because they gave plays a second shot. And Karen wanted me to meet a guy who was one of the leads in the play. Of course, she thought we had a lot in common, which we did, and we became friends. Is she already? Is she already a star? Of At this point, yeah. Uh huh. She's already a star. This guy isn't, mm -hmm. but a couple of people are, you know, doing pretty well. But the main star of the play mm -hmm. was this actress named Penelope Milford, who had been nominated for an Oscar for Coming Home. Oh wow! And who um, played the girlfriend of the guy that I was there to meet. Mm -hmm. And uh, during the play, she leaned into the guy in a way, and something in my heart went, "Oh shit! I always wanted a woman like that, lean into me like that in that particular way." You know, I just fell in love with this character. Mm -hmm. So when they were coming out, we were waiting for the people to come out. You know, I gave her the eye, and she gave me the eye, and then we got hooked it's up. It's not going to end well. You're with Karen Allen here. Yeah, but we're just friends. Oh, no, oh, pals. oh, oh no, okay. this is long after we were together. No, uh -huh. we we just became best friends. We uh -huh. were just lovers briefly when we were very young. She was very young. I was. She was twenty or twenty-one. I was thirty or thirty-one. But. Um, so we went to this place where all the actors hung out. I mm -hmm. can't remember where it was. What was it called? I used to call it Grand Central Station, but I always had malapropisms. I say the wrong words. Anyway. Cafe Central. There was Cafe place. Central, exactly. There you go. That's what it was. That's, okay. for some reason, I would think of I knew exactly what Grand you meant. Grand Central. You know? <laughs> My kids would know, but nobody else. Anyway, we all went there, and uh, you know we're eating, and we're at different tables, and there's all these various stars. Mm -hmm. Then he was at a table with Freddie Forrest, who was my favorite actor at the time, mm -hmm. for the Rose in uh, Apocalypse Now. Yeah, anyway, great. Penny comes over to see if she can borrow some cash. I need some cash back before we all use other Freddie things. Bart. 
Um, and I said something like, I wish I had it, you know, I loaned it to you, some, somebody loans it me. And, you know, we go on talking, and I, you know, I mean, I give her the eye when I say that or whatever. She comes back. <laughs> on her way out, she says, she hands me her number and says, you know, give me a call or something. And I'm thinking, okay, she either thinks I'm, I'm the dealer, because a lot of people would think that. You know, I usually wore a leather jacket, had this style and everything. Or, you know, I scored one, one way or the other. So I call her and she tells me to meet her after the show the next night. So I go back the next night. She's got this guy who flew in from Paris to see her. And I don't know who she is or anything. I don't read the playbill because I think, well, if you're hip to the theater world, you don't have to 